Logos and Trivigal podcast. I'm Chance Lunsford. I'm also Logos and Trivigal. Maybe you're also Logos and Trivigal. And while you're figuring that out, let me introduce today's special guest. I have with me the man, the myth, the legend, uh, the one and only Scott Adams. And Scott's a man who I became familiar with his persona, I guess, or his public face because of the Joe Rogan podcast some time ago. And I'd always enjoyed the Dilbert comics since probably just before entering adulthood. Um, but when I, when I heard you on Joe Rogan, Scott, I was immediately struck by how thoughtful you were in your approach to taking a look at politics and taking a look at some of the factors that were responsible in your view for uh, sort of elevating Donald Trump into the presidency. And from that point forward, I, I stayed interested in following you and I've, I've watched a lot of your periscopes and I'm just about finished with your latest book, Loser Think. And so I wanted to kind of invite you on here to, to talk about some of those skills of understanding how persuasion works and understanding how to look at the world with a little bit more critical eye uh, during this series that I'm doing on war. And um, I think you have one of the most thoughtful approaches to, to looking at politics, looking at reasons, looking at uh, contributing factors that, that tie one thing to another. And with that sort of brief introduction, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And why don't you tell the people, for those few who are unfamiliar with you, a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Well, thanks for having me. Um, mostly I'm known as being the creator of the Dilbert comic strip. But what people probably don't know, at least as much, is I'm also a trained hypnotist, and I've studied persuasion for most of my life, so I add that to what I call my talent stack. And I also have a degree in economics and an MBA from a, a good school and lots of corporate experience and a bunch of things. So that's that's the uh, the talent, let's say, breadth that I put into Loser Think, the book. And the point of that being that if you've been exposed to lots of different disciplines, you can probably see reality a little more clearly. So I fill in the gaps for people who have not been exposed across disciplines. So that's sort of where I'm at now. And I spend a lot of time talking about politics and especially the persuasion element of it. So I'm becoming more known for that lately. <clears throat> so you, you talked about in the book, um, and you've mentioned, I mean, you mentioned it often that you sort of stumbled into this whole political punditry world. And you also mentioned, you, you just mentioned the talent stack and how these things sort of snowball into opening up opportunities that you might never have expected to come your way, but because you have the certain capabilities at the right time, you're able to lean into the doors that open to you. And I guess I wonder, um, as you've gone along throughout your career, how much attention have you paid to politics all along the way? Or was it something that became more of interest to you in, in recent years? Well, I've always been interested just as a, as a citizen. So I'm sort of a news junkie. So I always follow the news, but I never had anything to offer until uh, Trump ran for president. And what I saw in him in 2015 is he had all of the persuasion talents that most people wouldn't even recognize. So if you don't study that field, you would think he looked crazy or mean, or he's a bully, he's random, he's impulsive. You know, you'd have all kinds of theories, but you would miss the primary theory, which is he actually knows what he's doing. 
and and his nicknames and his branding and all that are are really well designed and they fit formulas that are well known to people who study persuasion so that that's the thing that drew me in is i thought uh oh there's something people need to know because this guy's going to be their next president and they have no idea what's coming so that's what drew me in to to paying attention to you was was that sort of higher level way of looking at things, not so much caught in the, in the give and take of the daily political uh, quagmire, but, but sort of taking a step back and saying, okay, what is it about this person? What is it about this message that is m- causing it to make an impact in the minds of other people? And I guess I wonder f- from that vantage point, maybe, maybe you could talk about a couple of the, of the tools or, or skills that you noticed and then, um, sort of tie that into maybe why you suppose some of those things are not obvious to people just as on a casual basis. Uh, well, the, the most famous example, of course, is when Trump labeled uh, Jeb Bush as low energy. Now, on the same day he did that, I believe I'm the only person, at least with any kind of a you know, public uh, recognition, who said that's the end of Jeb Bush. I actually called it on that day, and I called it because of the nickname. And if you know, by today's standard, you look back, and most people would say, "Yeah, that actually made a difference." But when I said it, it just sounded crazy. I don't even think people paid attention to it too much because it was just so wild. You know, since when does a nickname take out the strongest dynasty in American politics? And but when I heard that, it was immediately obvious to me that he had framed him. And he'd framed him using contrast. That's one of the most important tools of persuasion. And because Trump was unambiguously the highest energy candidate, maybe we've seen, possibly, but he was certainly high energy, uh, it made you compare him in a way that you didn't naturally do. So if you had just looked at Jeb Bush by himself, you'd say, as I did, you'd say, well, there's a calm, collected executive type of personality. He's not going to get ruffled if there's an emergency. That's exactly the kind of personality you want for your leader. Somebody who can really put things in perspective and you know, handle it in a, in a reasonable you know, kind of manner. But the moment that Trump said he was low energy, you couldn't see anything else. And, and he looked like he was just disappearing in the, you know, in the light of Trump. So I, I saw immediately that that would take him out, and it did. Now, since then, we've seen Trump use uh, uh, a lot of the standard tricks of, of sales, which is you know making somebody think past the sale, for example. My favorite example is a recent one when he talked about Mike Bloomberg asking for a box to stand on for the debates. <laughs> now, uh, according, to all re- according to all reporting, no such thing happened. You know, it was completely made up, but it a whole bunch of Trump's talents are displayed in that little episode. The first thing is he makes you think past the sale. Now the sale is, you know, does he, did he ask for a box? You know, is that true or false? But he takes you all the way to, you know, wondering what kind of a box it is and who's talking about it. And is it fair? Is it fair that he has a box and tall people don't get to stand on a box? So that's a, a, a standard salesperson's trick to make you think past the sale of the purchase and to what it will be like when you get a home, right? You know, so if you go in to buy a car, the salesperson says, 
you know, do, do you think you'd uh, rather have the, the red one or the blue one in your, in your driveway? And it makes you think past buying it to, well, do I get the red one or the blue one? So standard tricks like that. And uh, he's also very, very visual in his language and, and simple, and he repeats. So he doesn't say, for example, and this would have been a mistake, he doesn't say, we need a variety of, uh, of systems and processes to handle the immigration so that we can control it the way we want to control it based on the economic needs of the time and safety. And, you know, you, you could make it a big complicated thing. And he just says, wall, going to build a wall. Now, of course, he is viciously attacked for the impracticality of building a solid, you know, impenetrable wall across the entire border. But he never really meant it. You know, and, uh, this is an assumption. I can't read his mind. But you have to assume he didn't mean it really every inch of the border. But, it, but by saying it, it absorbed all the attention because his critics couldn't stop saying, we can't build a wall on every inch. But while they were criticizing him, they were talking about border security. And that's the other thing he does is he'll create a, he'll create a mistake or, a, you know, let's say a, a factual error or his critics will call it a lie. And it will make them obsess over it until the only thing we're thinking about is the topic he told us was the important one. So if you can make somebody engage and think about the topic you want them to talk about, it almost doesn't matter if they're criticizing you. That's one of the things that he does consistently is, is he manages our attention. I always say that attention is half of persuasion. So the, <laughs> the first half is people got to stop watching other things and watch you for a while. If you don't get that, there's nothing else that matters because they're not going to see it. So uh, he gets attention like uh, you've never seen before in politics, and then he's good at weaponizing it once he has it. It's like they like to say on the uh, sort of e-com Twitter sphere, uh, you got to live rent-free in their heads. Yeah. And it, it does seem he's, he's quite uh, prolific and skilled at doing that. It's, it's almost impossible not to think about him. I've never seen anything like it. Even his enemies, they can't stop thinking about him. He is a, a permanent obsession to all of us, and it looks like it's going to be eight years of it at least. And, and after he's out of office, I think we're still going to be talking about him as much as we're going to talk about whoever is the president at that point. Probably his enemies, especially, it would seem to me to be the case, can't stop thinking about him. Yeah, I think he's just a permanent part of our reference. You know, it's a common reference, so it's obvious why everybody uses it, because we all know what it means. So, yeah, we're, we're never going to forget him, that's for sure. Sure. Okay. So, so now with that, um, I've had some guests in this series and I have some guests coming up who disagree with one of the premises in your book, Loser Think, which is that uh, the future is looking pretty bright when it comes to wars and, and how many wars we're going to have and, and how intense those wars are going to be. And that's fine. Uh, disagreements are good. That's sort of where people can think about things and apply a little critical thinking skill. But I guess I wonder, from, from your vantage point, uh, you know, you have that chapter on the golden future. And you paint a pretty rosy picture. Um, and then you, you encourage people to disagree with you, or at least to take a look and find the places where they think they disagree with you, and then to 
sort of measure those predictions against the future. And I guess I'm wondering what, first of all, why do you think people are so easily convinced into um, thinking that we're going to live in this perpetual state of war? And, and second, what do you think maybe the contributing factors are to maybe somebody doesn't necessarily believe that, but is a proponent of that messaging? Well, there are probably several things that cause it. One is that the way our brains are wired is that we're wired to not pay attention to things that are working well and to focus on whatever is broken. So it's just the natural human inclination to see the negative. Then on top of that, you've got the, the two teams of politics. And the team that's out of office is going to be saying everything's going to heck and the only thing that can fix it is if one of their candidates gets elected. And we live in a world in which people do not independently form opinions. I don't know if we ever have. But at this point, it's increasingly obvious when you talk to anybody about politics, you can tell what channel they watch, you know, their news. You can tell you know, what, what they read today. And the, uh, our opinions are largely assigned to us by the news. And Republicans and Democrats, it's the same. If you talk to anybody about any topic, they're going to say arguments that you heard on TV. Every time. Um, and the test there, and this sort of a, a mental test, imagine, if you will, any of the big stories about Trump, if they had just been reported just purely factually, just they just said what he said and just left it there. No pundits, no telling you what to think. Almost none of what we think about Trump would have emerged from people forming their own opinions, you know, or, or you'd have a million different opinions. But instead, we've got very similar opinions among all Democrats and among all Republicans. And those map exactly what the pundits are saying, and the pundits all coordinate. So the pundits all say the same thing on CNN or versions of it. And you can tell by the choice of language. You know, they're all going to pick the same language. You, you can tell that the, the memo has come out about how to talk about these things. <laughs> so we, we naturally notice things that are bad. We don't immediately know how to fix them which is different from being able to fix them eventually. And I talk about what I call the Adam's Law of Slow-Moving Disasters. And I, I named it after myself because I don't think anybody had made exactly the same observation the same way, which is that whenever humanity has a gigantic problem heading our way, such as the idea that our population would grow faster than our food supply, it doesn't matter what it is. The year 2000 bug is going to kill us. We're going to run out of oil in the 70s. Uh, we're going to have a nuclear war. Wh whatever it is, we're amazingly good at solving problems we can see coming. The, the stuff that's a problem is hurricane hits you know, Puerto Rico. I mean, in some sense, you could, you could know there was a risk. But things that we know are coming, such as climate change, you know, at least the experts say they know that, um, we're, we have a 100% success rate over all of humanity, 100%. <laughs> Every single time. We figured out. Now, you mentioned in the book, I talk about climate change and the good news there. And for people who are not aware of it, there are a number of startups uh, already who are up and running and they've built prototypes that can suck the, uh, the CO2 right out of the air. And in some cases, they turn it into different products, I don't know, plastic and jet fuel. There are a few things you can do with it or just sequester it. But the, the limitation to solving climate change is really just making those devices a little more economical. Now, what is it that humanity does better than anything? Invent a device 
and then make it more economical. There's nothing we do better than that. In fact, it's, it's just our most basic, normal, routine thing. Let's make a device. It's expensive at first. We'll make a bunch of them. We'll figure out how to make it more efficient. Other people will invent one. We'll have competition. Ten years from now, those are going to be really efficient. At the moment, they're, they're kind of not quite economical to do what you need to do. But there's no reason they won't be. Uh, so, so we have the option of sucking it directly out of the air. You saw that even President Trump agreed to be part of planting a trillion trees. Now, that's not the fastest way to do things, but we know it'll work. You know, it, it, it's nice that it's a big ask, but it's one we can do, and we know it'll work. So you got the trees, you've got the carbon-sucking machines, and then a lot of people are not up to date on nuclear energy. If, if what you know of nuclear energy is the disasters, well, again, that's because that's what makes news. There's no news story about the plant that's been operating for 30 years without a peep. Nobody cares about that one. So what people have missed is that the uh, technology for keeping nuclear plants safe from every kind of disaster and meltdown is really, really good now. So even the current generation, which we call Generation 3, have never had a meltdown. You know, these are, these are machines that are around the world, all right? No, not one. Not one meltdown. And when people say, well, what are you going to do about that dangerous nuclear waste? It was pointed out to me recently that when we think about nuclear waste, let me test this with you. Don't you think of it as a liquid? Do you think of it as liquid? In your mind, when you imagine nuclear waste, do you see it that way? Because, because it used to be. Or, or actually for weapons manufacturing, the, the nuclear waste from that is sort of liquid. And if you imagine a liquid nuclear waste in any kind of a container, it's pretty scary, isn't it? Because <laughs> you think it's going to get out. It's liquid. Liquid leaks. But it turns out that uh, nuclear power plants produce solids, sort of like a solid metal tube, except it's whatever material they use for the, for the reaction. So storing a solid is just sort of putting it in a container and putting it with the other containers, and you're kind of done. But also people don't know that the next generation of nuclear, the so-called Generation 4, will actually use that spent fuel from other reactors as its fuel. So the new generation will actually reduce the worldwide amount of nuclear waste by eating it for power. Now, if you didn't know that, you'd be really afraid of the future. But Bill Gates is you know, one investor in a big company. There, there are a few others in this space building the next generation. And really all they needed was government support for a, a test bed and you know, approval of permits to get testing and stuff. And this administration is actually very pro-nuclear. So the Energy Department has, has done a lot that's sort of under the hood. You don't see it too much. But they're building testing sites. They're you know, funding the right stuff. So I would say in 20 years... You're going to have uh, nuclear power plants that are small and economical. Uh, they eat waste instead of produce it, and they can't melt down by design. Generation four, if you lose all your power, it just stops working. The, the older generations, like generation two and earlier, if you didn't have power on all the time, they would melt down because you had to be continually cooling it, whereas the generation four is, is built backwards from that. So it just stops working if the power goes off. Um, and, you, and you see even Fukushima, they had their backup generators behind a, uh, a seawall. In other words, their backup generators were below sea level right on the beach. 
So the so the tsunami took out the backup power before it even took out the anything else. So before it took out the regular power. So nobody in their right mind would build that today. <laughs> like even and, and you have to ask yourself, even when they built that, nobody mentioned uh, the whole point of a backup power is that if the other other power goes out, that one still works. It's not backup power if it goes out first. <laughs> and obviously they knew there was a tsunami risk because it's Japan. So I don't know what they were thinking, but we wouldn't build one with such an obvious flaw. We would never build a generation two at all. Generation three has never had a problem. It's relatively safe. It can melt down under extreme wrong conditions, but we've never seen it. And then generation four is going to be about as safe as you can get. So, I'm not worried about climate change, and and the skeptics might say, "Well, hey Scott, you know, I think it's a hoax, or it's not the problem that you think it is." You know, whatever the skeptics are saying. To which I say, it doesn't really matter because we're going to need clean, safe energy and lots of it, no matter what. So the same thing we're doing to keep the air and water clean and to produce energy, it gets you right where you want. And if and if we plant a trillion trees. And it turns out we didn't need a trillion trees. We still like trees. <laughs> you know, there, there's, no, there's no wrong way to plant a tree. I, I've never heard anybody say, oh, everything was good until trees. You know? <laughs> so so, so we, you know, we humans are pretty clever when, when we're faced with disaster. And we've got at least three you know, gigantic things going on, any one of which would probably solve the problem. Let me run something else by you. I, uh, I have a friend named Dr. Sean McFate who's been on this podcast before and is coming on again soon. And he, uh, he just released a book called The New Rules of War. And it's a very interesting book. And one of the terms that he has coined is called durable disorder. And essentially what he's saying is that this, this post-Westphalian treaty era is an interlude and that we are slowly returning to um, a state of war being fought by not necessarily state actors, but that mercenaries comprise much of the armed forces already in the world today, and that's only on the rise, and that this commercialization of war is going to allow um, Scott Adams with his million dollars to hire his private army if he wants to, or this corporation to hire an army, and that if you look at sort of the narco states, which he described them as um, a terrorist organization and a global corporation combined into one. But the idea is that essentially we're going to see a lot more of these smaller armed conflicts uh, perpetuated by these mercenaries and that mercenaries uh, will act like they always have and will double cross and will uh, instigate more wars so that they can continue to be paid and, and these kinds of things and that we're going to probably see more and more of that into the future, less of the giant aircraft carriers and the giant bombs and things, but more of just like a lot of small conflicts all over the world as people are reaching out to get what they want. And I, I wonder what, what your take on that is. Yeah, I think uh, war is going to trend smaller and more personal, exactly like you were saying. See, um, I predicted for some time, and I, I think it's inevitable. And here's the inevitable part, that the big powers, the big nuclear powers, let's say us and Russia and, and China, <clears throat> are, are destined to be allies because our common enemy is exactly what you were talking about, small, individual, personal armies, terrorists, 
you know, the lone wolf factor and everything. Those are the things that um, really are a threat to all of the big countries. But none of us are really a threat to each other. That's just inertia. And, you know, in, in what world would China attack the United States? Never. There, there's no rational reason for that. In what world would we attack them or Russia would attack us or Russia and China? None. There is no scenario which anybody could describe, no matter how good their imagination was, in which that would ever be a good idea for anybody. Now, the minimum requirement for a, a war is that at least one of the two potential parties thinks they could win or it would be a good idea. They, they think they could come out ahead. So we've lost the essential element of big wars, a reason to come out ahead, or even just, you know, maybe I'll come out ahead. If you go back to World War II, you know, as crazy as Hitler and, you know, the Japanese seemed to be, they had a reasonable chance of winning. In other words, there was, there was an argument that they could come out ahead by doing all this bad stuff. If anybody thinks they can come out ahead, well, bad stuff's going to happen. That's pretty much guaranteed. But I would say we've reached a point where there are actually zero people, zero, not, not a single person anywhere in the world who thinks a war between the major nuclear powers could be positive in any way for anybody. <laughs> so I think it's just obsolete. Um, but like you say, the, the smaller mercenaries and terrorists and cartels and narco states and all that will be going forever. And I think we just have a common enemy in them because uh, I don't believe that the cartels are only shipping you know, drugs to the United States, right? You know, everybody's got their, their own cartel. So I think what's going to happen with the cartels, if I had to guess, is I think we will end up uh, sending some drones over there. And they might even be private. Because one of the things that could happen is that private American mercenaries will start flying drones into cartel territory and just taking out convoys. And then Mexico will say, hey, your, your American took out some convoys. And we'll say, wasn't us. You know, and if we, could, if we could catch him, we'd put him in jail. Do you have him? And they'd say, <laughs> no. And we'd say, we don't have him either. What do you want us to do? We didn't send the drone. We don't own him. He's not working for us, and we can't catch him. So I think you're going to see actually rich people hiring mercenaries to take care of cartels. You know, the, I mean, all it would take is one billionaire to say, you know, I'll bet I could put a missile on a, you know, on a drone, and I'll bet I could mess up that cartel. So I think that's going to happen. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if cartels got their own, <laughs> their own drones with missiles. Uh, I think they already have their own drones that could probably drop a hand grenade or something. But yeah, I, I think the cartels will be taken out with drones and it may not be the United States government who is officially behind it. Hmm. And and not officially sanctioning it either, but they, they can neither confirm nor deny their their <laughs> advanced knowledge. And, um, and our budget doesn't have enough money to catch this guy. I wish we could. I just wish we could catch him, but we don't know where he is. It's going to look like that. And what was the political gridlock? We, uh, we just really can't divert the resources. Yeah, there'll always be a reason. So that, I think that's where it's going. And actually, I'd be maybe happy if it did. Hmm. Yeah, maybe you have a little vested interest in, in seeing that it does there too, you've talked about before. Yeah, my, my stepson uh, died from a, an overdose that included fentanyl um, in 2018. And, 
that all comes from China, goes to the cartels, the cartels process it and ship it in. So I want, uh, yeah, I want, I want the cartels dead. I think, I think a lot of people feel pretty similar to that. Maybe they don't have such a close to home story, but maybe they do too. Well, a lot of people do. I mean, with 50,000 opioid related deaths in the United States per year, just in a year, it's exceeding, you know, that's more than the people who died in Vietnam and the entire war, in, at least on the American side. So almost everybody knows somebody at this point. Um, yeah. And and from from my just sort of own personal life, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in that world myself, and it was a struggle to get out of there. And, and I look at it and I, uh, I'm a pretty rare case in that regard. And I feel very fortunate to have had a lot of support and and a strong will to recover from that world. But, you know, I knew, I knew a lot of people who did not and are dead or in prison. And right. it's a, it's a sad, it's a sad world to live in. Yep. Yep. I think so, we'll get a handle on it, but, but uh, it's going to take a while. I think that's right. So here's, here's, a, here's a question I have. We, we sort of talked about a traditional war or the idea of, you know, sending our big bullets after each other and big bombs after each other. But um, obviously a lot of the international conflict these days is uh, information based or, or cyber based or, or culturally based. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of information sort of being revealed about say Chinese or Qatari influence in the media or, or just uh, indoctrination going one way or the other, or, or, controversies over how much influence or impact say somebody like Russia is having uh, in the cyber realm or China in the cyber realm. And I guess I wonder um, as, as we are less inclined and less likely to have a big bomb war, but it seems there's not a lot of uh, resistance on this cyber front and on this information and cultural warfare. I wonder uh, where you see that going. Well, I think there's a, a big shift happening. And the shift is that in, um, even if you think about it, war is persuasion. It's just killing people to persuade them to surrender or, or give you what you want. So everything's persuasion. And like you said, since the, the normal military wars don't work as well as we imagine they used to, um, the big battle is between money and persuasive people using persuasive means. In other words, uh, there are people like President Trump whose personality is so persuasive that he could beat somebody who had more money, Clinton in this case, right? She had a lot more money, but it didn't help. <clears throat> I think, and, and you see a lot of things that I've been saying on politics become uh, part of the news, you know, even the last couple of days, you know, I just read the news and half the time the news is about me. You know, something I tweeted on a topic, you know, again, this morning happened. And uh, I have persuasion skills. And now because of social media and, you know, 380,000 Twitter followers, and a lot of the people who follow me on Periscope when I do my live streams every morning are part of the press. So my influence went from, you know, guy making cartoons all alone in his studio, thanks to the miracle of technology, I'm somewhat unleashed in the same way that Trump is unleashed, because he always had those tools, but he needed a certain kind of media situation, a certain kind of social media situation 
for those to be um, unleashed totally. You know, Trump without Twitter is not is not really the same Trump, right? I mean, Twitter is a central you know pole for his persuasion. So I um, there's a lot of stuff I see behind the scenes because now I've sort of contacted and met enough people in network that I hear stories that I can't even tell. I mean, they're they're so outrageous based on real stuff, not speculation, things I actually know to be happening from the actual people who are involved, that it's just mind-boggling, and you could never tell the story because people wouldn't believe it. It just, it just The actual reality is sometimes not believable. But basically what's happening is that it's uh, money buys influence in the usual way, you know, soft bribes, if you will. Well, I won't give you money to vote this way, but – you know, your uh, brother-in-law has got that startup and he's looking for funding. Well, he might get his funding. You know, so there's always this, there are lots of ways to bribe with money that don't look like bribes. And in fact, they're totally legal. I, you know, I'm not sure that example is exactly legal, but they're so hard to discover that they operate as if legal. You know, they're, they're unprosecutable. So it's money. And then there's people like me. Uh, of which there are lots lots of me, the people who get more attention uh, are more persuasive. And it feels like that's the battle now. Um, you know, even if you look at the trade war with China, that's negotiation. That's persuasion. Uh, everything's persuasion, and it's money versus talent. And that's the new frame. Uh, and I don't think it was ever that before. Money was always important, but the talent part was dormant because you didn't have social media to unleash it. And now anybody who has my skill set is becoming super powerful very quickly because those powers unleashed on social media with, with vast reach, um, nobody really understands how powerful this stuff is and it's out of the box now. That's interesting. And it, the way you frame that ties very neatly into uh, a framework proposed in a book I just finished reading called The Dictator's Handbook. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one, but... Yeah. I, it's I, I highly recommend it. It's very interesting, and it it takes a very um, some would say cynical look at the world of politics, and it basically just says, look, you've got three groups: you've got the essentials, you've got the selectorate, and you've got the broader coalition. And the broader coalition, the only point, which if you were a Democrat or Republican, it's just how many how many people in the populace do you need? What's the minimum amount you need to win? the power. And then the selectorate is who is actually influencing those people to come your way. And then the essentials are, if you don't have these people in your coalition, you can't win. Mm. And the smaller that the essentials are, the, the closer it gets to an autocracy. And then the, the larger that that essentials is, the closer it gets to a more traditional democracy. Um, and, and to sort of tie that into what you were just saying, it seems like we're going through a transition period here where the selectorate and the essentials are transitioning out of the more traditional political world and into the influencer, the online influencer world, mainly because the traditional media seems to be sort of withering. Um, and, I, and I guess I wonder what you think about that framework and, and whether that ties into to what you think well, to be true. Well, so I don't know the details about that, that framing, but certainly the essentials may have changed. I would imagine the essentials used to be the people who had, were well-networked, they were good at organizing, they could get fundraising. So mostly that's probably about money and contacts. But I would say the essentials now are uh, influential people. 
you, you pretty much have to have the influentials on your side uh, or you're in trouble at this point. Hmm. That's a, uh, I'm going to ponder that within this media framework. I think well, uh, let, let, let me give it a more, uh, I'll give a little more meat on this. Um, you're familiar probably with Mike Cernovich on sure. Twitter. Now, uh, although he's not a household name in, in general, he's very well known in Twitter and social media and in politics. He probably, I don't know what his Twitter numbers are now. Uh, I don't know, three quarters of a million or something like that. That's a lot of something people. Like that. He's followed by a lot of important people, so that's even more important. I believe that somebody like him, and I'll say like him, so I'll just use him as my example. It's not really about him. Somebody like him who also has all of the tools of persuasion, he writes about it, and you know, it's one of his main things, uh, he, could, he could end a presidency hmm. just by himself. I mean, he'd have to be highly motivated. He'd have to really care. But he has the tool set um, to change an election just by himself uh, because he has that much um, persuasive firepower on top of a lot of reach because he has so many followers. Now, I'm not going to say he's going to do that. And of course, you'd have to balance that against, is there anybody else who's just as powerful arguing the other side? They could you know, balance them out. But I'll, I'll just make this and all things being equal. Let, let's say he decided to go against some candidate, doesn't matter who it is, and go hard against them or hard for them either way. Uh, unless it was somebody of equal persuasive talent pushing back just as hard, it would make a big difference. And that, that was never the case before. You couldn't have one influential person wouldn't change a national race, but I think he could. Unless maybe it was the person in the national race. Well, right, yeah, the yeah. people in the race, of course. Just sort of a parallel to that, I, I had Ali Alexander on here just after he really went hard after Kamala Harris. Um, and you know he likes to take all the credit for for sort of sinking that boat. Um, and you've talked you've talked about uh, possibilities down the road for her, and then that's that's interesting too. Uh, and and to the extent that he was responsible for uh, sort of putting that on hiatus or not, he definitely made an impact because he's got a hundred thousand plus followers, and a lot of political and media people are, are well, following him and involved with him. So. Let, let me say a little bit about technique when it comes to him. First of all, he, I would consider him a, uh, a rising influencer, meaning that he's a student. So you see him uh, hoovering up and just absorbing lessons from people who know how to do this stuff. Um, and, you know, I, he's, he's obviously learning from the right people because you can, you can watch his power growing. Now, to that very example – if you were not a student of persuasion and you heard him make that claim, you might say to yourself, well, it's either true or it's false, but you know, it seems like an overreach. I'm not going to quite you know, believe that he was the one who did that. But that would be slightly missing what's going on here. <laughs> what's going on here is that by making the claim, he's, he's building a brand. And, and his brand gets more powerful as, you know, let's, let's say uh, 20% of the people who heard him make that claim thought it was reasonable and the other 80% thought not. Well, the 80% who thought not are irrelevant. You know, they just go on with their lives. But the 20 people who think he made a difference, you know, maybe added with other people later, there's something else he does that they say, oh, I, I believe you did do that. So he's, bringing, he's building a, uh, a brand which has its own power, which is I'm a guy who can influence these things. 
So I see that as a claim, but in the context of someone who's becoming a more powerful persuader every day, it's well played. Because making that claim makes everybody think that way. And even if they reject it, they start thinking, well, you know, Ali Alexander, he's one of these people who can influence national uh, events. I don't know if that claim was exactly true, could have been true, maybe has some influence, but Ali Alexander is a guy who influences natural, national debates. So he wins, right? So the point is, it doesn't matter if that's exactly true. It doesn't matter if you, <laughs> if you can uh, you know, measure it because it's not something you measure, but it was the right play. So when you watch people make the right play, um, those are the ones with potential. Hmm. That, that just brings up an interesting point of curiosity for me. It, how active are you in sort of scoping out the, the influencer world and looking for the rising stars in the world of influence and going, oh, hey, here's a guy who's doing something? Well, I, I'm not active in the, in the sense of uh, intentionally trying to map out that land, but when I see something, I'll call it out. So early on when AOC was, was just the initial flash in the pan, you know, bartender who won against all odds, um, I and some people who understand this work, and again, Mike Servich, you know, I like to use him as an example to show that I'm not the weirdo alone who has learned these skills and, and operates them at a high level. Um, we both said almost immediately, uh-oh, you're mocking her but she's going to be your president someday. Or I don't know if he said that, but the, the point is she's the real thing. You, you can love or hate her policies. I don't think they're practical exactly, but man, is she good. She can get your attention. Again, the 50% part. If you can't get people's attention, there's nothing else that matters if you're trying to influence. She gets that. And then what's everybody talking about? She basically took over the Democrats on her first day of work. Who does that? The only people who do that are the people who are really, really good at this. And she is really good at this. So she has Trump-like skill. And, and here's, here's the crazy part. She's only, how old is she? 30, young, early 30. 30 something, yeah. These are the types of skills. It's not like being a you know, ballerina where you're good until you're in your 20s and then you're, you're too old. You can get better forever. At persuasion because you just keep learning how to do it. It's just a learned skill. She's in her early 30s. Oh my God. By the time she's 60, if she's not president, I'll be, I'll be amazed. And I think it's going to happen a lot sooner than that. So people like her, uh, Matt Gates on the Republican side, he's, he's an up and comer. He's not like other people. You know, his uh, understanding of persuasion, how to get attention, how to do this stuff. He, I, he's not Trump level, but he will be hmm. right? like he's, he's closing that gap really closely. I would be amazed if we don't have a president Gates someday, probably before we have a president uh, AOC, but I think both, both of them, you know, short of some weird thing that happens that can't be predicted. They're both on a direct path to the presidency. Interesting. And to the AOC point, there's a lot of discussion around the support that she has or that she has handlers or that, uh, but there's been a lot of people who have had support and handlers and, and they haven't been able to do what she's done. So well, 
Yeah, there's a little more to that story, which is uh, not not everybody understands that they she was discovered with sort of a, an, a what is it American Idol like process where it was an open audition for people who were not already politicians but had all the skills, and then the Democrat machine would would help them turn those skills into an actual campaign, and then you know find places where they could win even without much uh, experience. That's what they did. So when you see that she is unusually skilled, like you say to yourself, how do you even find somebody this skilled? And the answer is you look really hard. So it wasn't that she volunteered, although they all volunteered in the contest, I guess, but she was just the best. So it's, it's not, it shouldn't surprise anybody that the, whoever wins American Idol goes on to make gold records, right? There's a reason for that. They, they, found the best singer or the best persuader. I actually watched that documentary on Netflix. I, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was very interesting to, to watch that process unfold. And I guess I wonder, what do you think the chances are of a Republican version of America's next top politician? Well, I don't know that they're running any kind of a literally a, a search, but like I said, um, Matt Gates is an obvious one. Um, you know, he's a, uh, is it and who's a Josh Hawley? Josh Hawley is that the senator from uh, I don't know. Can never remember my senators, but he's another one I would keep an eye on. He seems to have all the tools. He's uh, he's about fifty percent the power of Matt Gates right now, but he was twenty five percent, you know, six months ago. <laughs> so he's learning quickly. Hmm. Okay, so. One of the things you said earlier gave me one of those hmm moments, which is war is essentially persuasion. And I, I, think that's, I think that's essentially correct. And I guess as I'm, as I'm thinking about this conversation and, you know, you talked about in the book how you, you tried to learn how to manage your periscopes by actively talking about a subject, but then also learning the skill of, of reading the live comments and taking those in and, that's a skill I've tried to work on during these podcasts of actively listening, but still participating. And as I've been considering what you've been saying, that's one of the things that has stuck out to me is war is essentially persuasion. And I guess what I'd like to leave people with something they can sink their teeth into or that they can use to build their skills or their understanding of things. And I'm curious in this context of the conversation we've had, how would you, encourage people to to look at this subject and to look at the peripheral subjects surrounding the idea of war and and arm themselves or or prepare their defenses against the onslaught of information or if they want to influence it how they might do so better well i'll give you some examples um first of all let me start with the provocative opinion that president trump is our best war president we've ever had now you might say to yourself well, all he did was mop up some ISIS stuff, you know, fire a few missiles, hasn't really done much war stuff. But that's actually my point. Um, if you look what he did with North Korea, he opened up a dialogue, turned both, both leaders into human beings. Kim Jong-un is not getting what he wants, but he's also not aiming his nukes at us because he made it a personal thing, respected him and said, look, we totally respect you. I like you. I have, nothing, I have no reason to hate you, but we're not going to give you stuff if you're pointing nuclear weapons at us. 
So what Trump does better than anybody is he de depersonalizes it. You know, in the past, it was, you know, it was all uh, Kim Jong-un is crazy madman. We can't deal with him. We better fire, you know, something has to be done. We'll kill him or whatever. And none of that was really effective. So Trump took it a different way. He used persuasion instead of bullets. And now we're at a, a far more, um, let's say, more options. Uh, who knows where it's going to go? But it doesn't look like Kim Jong-un has a reason anymore. You know, we don't have a reason to be at war with him. He doesn't have a reason to be at war with us. And it took Trump to explain that. Why did nobody else explain that we don't have a reason to be at war? We don't have a reason to conquer him. We don't have a reason to want him out of office necessarily. We just don't care. We just don't want him you know, aiming his nukes in our direction. If you look at Iran, um, you know, Trump took out General Soleimani, and everybody in the world except me, I think I was literally the only public person who was saying, you know, this might actually work because I think that guy's more the problem than he is, you know, creating a problem by killing him. And sure enough, it looks like Iran, you know, had to do something symbolic. You know, unfortunately, some U.S. soldiers did have some, some head injuries from the, the shocks, I guess. And um, we should be concerned about that. But it looked like their intention was to not kill anybody. And that's, that's a good, good sign. So you see Trump with a Middle East plan, which is the most brilliant Middle East plan ever because it doesn't require the Palestinians to agree to it. <laughs> Whoever came up with that idea, that's the best idea ever because Israel will just say, you know, you can be a state or not a state, but it's all the same to us. It looks the same to us. So we're out. We're just going to do our thing. You can be part of the international community or you can go on the way you are and nobody will support you. We've got Saudi Arabia on our side now, so good luck. And, and Iran is broke, thanks to us, so good luck. Uh, that positioning is, is beyond brilliant. I mean, every part of that, all the parts that, the, that Trump put in play, they're all the right parts. Now, who knows if we get the right result, but you could not be closer to something good in the Middle East. We are right on the edge, doesn't mean it'll work, but right on the edge of everything coming together. And the Palestinians just say, all right, all right, we'll just do our thing, you do your thing. and Maybe we'll leave each other alone for a while. Now, I doubt that'll happen. I think Israel will have a permanent problem with the people who want to destroy Israel, but they seem to have it under such good control that I don't know how much of a real problem it is to, to life and death. So anyway, the, the president seems to be really good at avoiding war and creating situations where he can influence in a variety of ways trade. He likes to use trade as his weapon uh, and uh, persuasion, and he does it better than anybody. So if he can get all of these things done without firing bullets, he's the best war president we've ever had. You know, I watched that press conference where they announced that deal. and. And I was struck essentially by the same thing that you just lined out. I thought, what, what balls mm -hmm. to say, look, this is what we're doing. And, and Netanyahu said, we're going to apply Israeli law to the places that we're at already. If we're there, it's Israel. And the United States has agreed to support us in that. So you can, you can go along to get along or, or you can not, but we have the support now extended beyond the regions that we had before and we're just going to do this and and over here is Amman and over here is Jordan and over here is the UAE uh, so 
you're kind of friendless. Yeah, and I always talk about uh, persuasion is very sensitive to direction, more than it is sensitive to where things are at at the moment. And uh, the direction is that every day that goes by, Israel gets stronger, and uh, the Palestinians, you know, they've lost American financial support. I think Saudi Arabia is, I don't know what they're doing, but they're probably not too happy with them at the moment. So the Palestinians get worse every day, and Israel gets better every day, and Israel offers them less in return for a deal, you know, less land, less everything. Uh, so they really have an interest in getting a deal done as soon as possible, because whatever deal they do tomorrow is just going to be worse. And so Israel set up that expectation. That's very powerful. Now, I don't think um, the Palestinian leadership is such that they could ever make a deal because, uh, you know, the, the leaders themselves would be assassinated by, by the afternoon of the day that they decided they'd be good to Israel. So we don't have anybody we can work with, but now it doesn't matter maybe. Just let them do their own thing and, you know, keep the security up. Hmm. So we're kind of closing in on the, on the hour mark here, and I want to make sure we're respectful of your time. And this conversation, just, just like just about everything I've seen from you, there's a lot of stuff that's, that's right there on the surface level that's easy for people to grab, but there's a lot of stuff you've said that sort of hits some of those more subtle layers. You've, you've expressed a lot of principles and things that I think my audience is really going to enjoy digging into. Um, so first and foremost, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to come onto my podcast and have this conversation with me. It's been enjoyable for me. And uh, I also want to encourage people to maybe go back and, and listen to this a little more carefully if you weren't listening carefully in the first place. Because as I've been listening, I've been picking up on things going, oh, that's, that's something I really want to think about a little bit more. And you talked about in Loser Think at the beginning of the book, you said, look, I'm going to give you some skills. And here's the reason I have the skills. I guess I should tell you before I go on, but you're going to read this book and then it's just going to have an effect on you. It's just going to un unravel itself and you're going to be looking at the world a little differently and uh, different truths are going to reveal themselves to you because you've had these ideas put into your brain. And I liked that. I like that you're using this sort of hypnotic or, or persuasive technique right there in the beginning. I, this is what I'm doing to you, and it's going to work. There's nothing you can do about it. If you right. finish this book, it's going to happen. Um, so I, I really want to encourage people to go read that book, and uh, I'm going to dive into a couple of your other works here pretty soon because I enjoyed this one a lot. Uh, but with that, I, I just want to give you a chance to let people know where they can find more of you, uh, where they can find you on social media or your blog, and if there's anything – that you've got forthcoming that you'd like to plug or anything like that, it'd be a great time to just let people know what you've got to offer. Well, the best place to find all things about me is at Twitter uh, at, at Scott Adams says it's all one word, Scott Adams says, and that'll, that'll show you where my periscopes are. I do a live stream every morning at 7 a.m. California time, 10 a.m. Eastern. Uh, and Dilbert.com is where you can find the comic. But go to find me on Twitter, and that'll point to everything. And if you're looking for my books, just go to, you know, just Google my name and books, and they'll all pop up. Very good. Well, is there are there any bits or are there any questions that you feel like maybe a person ought to ask but didn't get asked here, or anything you'd like to leave as a parting nugget of wisdom for the people? 
I was expecting you to ask, Scott, why are you so good looking? But I guess we didn't have time to talk about that. So. No, I was I, just too I, uncomfortable with my with my own lack of own sexuality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, I think I liked your questions. There, you know, it's a big world, so there are always more questions. But I thought yours were uh, well chosen. Well, thank you very much. Uh, in that case, if you're good, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks so much. Very good. This has been the Logos and Trivial Podcast. I've been Chance Lunsford. He's been Scott Adams. And this has all been allegedly. We're out of here.